Puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? higher side chatters we've all heard new age gurus and alternative health practitioners preaching the power of positive thinking saying that illness is nothing but dis-ease in the vessel we call the body and that with increased development of the mind's deepest depths we can will our way back to health and manifest realities we never thought possible well a lot of people might write these ideas off as silliness but today's guest insists it's science people and i think he makes one of the best cases of anyone i've heard Dr. Bruce Lipton has been internationally recognized as a leading expert in rebuilding the bridge between science and spirit against the best wishes of Big Pharma and the medical cartel milking man for those almighty dollars. Because of the course of Dr. Lipton's research career, where he started as a cell biologist, he's made multiple discoveries that validate these alternative perspectives and turn what we know about health, happiness, and reality itself upside down. He's been diving deeper into the work since the early 80s, having spent years at Stanford School of Medicine. He's also written several books about his work, including the best-selling Biology of Belief and The Honeymoon Effect. And his work can be considered a serious precursor to today's trendy field known as epigenetics. A brilliant guy I feel lucky to spend even just one hour talking with, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Welcome to The Higher Side. Greg, I am excited to be here with you, and I especially I'm happy that we have such a wonderful audience of open-minded people ready to listen to some new and I would say very self-empowering ideas about how biology, life, and spirituality are all intertwined. Oh, for sure. Amen, man. And thanks for being here. I do find your work super interesting, some of the most convincing stuff when it comes to breaking down the hidden truths about that mind-body connection and our power over our health, as opposed to the mainstream paradigm that says your genes are your genes and you can't really do much about what happens to you. And I know we only have an hour, so I don't want you to have to rehash the things you've said a thousand times too much, but in the interest of leaving no man behind, can you elaborate on some of the major misconceptions about health and life that you're working to correct? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the main thing that you've already bridged is the concept that we have been programmed with a belief that our lives are under the control of our genes, meaning that we give genes a character like they can turn on and they can turn off. So people frequently say, yeah, a cancer gene turned on or something like that. And it's like, this is so much BS <laughs> that it really is time for uh, uh, coming to truth. And the truth is this, a gene is actually just a blueprint to make a building block of the body called a protein. So the cells that make up our body are built out of components called proteins. And proteins are very complex molecules. There are about 100,000 different kinds of proteins. The question is, where does a protein molecule come from? I mean, it just doesn't come out of thin air. The significance is that this is where the DNA comes in. The DNA represents a molecular blueprint, a linear blueprint to create a protein. Why is this relevant? Because, look, it is just a blueprint. And the emphasis on that is to try to consider it this way. You go into an architect's office and she's working on a blueprint. You lean over her shoulder and you ask, 
hey, is your blueprint on or off? And then she'll look at you like, what are you, crazy? It's a <laughs> blueprint. There's no on and off to a blueprint. Precisely. This is the point. We have given the character of DNA to possess what is called self-actualization. What that really means is we give DNA an ability to turn itself on and off. The fact is this. Genes do not turn on and off. Genes are just, as I said, blueprints. What we left out of the equation and now has come back into the story is that Yes, we have blueprints, but more importantly, there's a contractor who reads and selects the blueprints and modifies the blueprints. And while we've been focusing on the blueprints, we've left out of the story completely the so-called contractor who was actually in charge of reading the genes and actually even rewriting the genes. So now, of course, the big question, then who or what the heck is this contractor and this is the exciting part that led me into a, a whole new world of understanding the nature of uh, biology and medicine. I used to be a professor in a medical school. And in my position in that medical school, teaching about the nature of histology, cells, tissues, and how they work, I was relaying to the students a conventional belief, yes, that genes turn on and off and control the physical, behavioral, and emotional characteristics of the biology of an organism. Why is that relevant? Well, if genes are controlling these characteristics and recognize a simple fact, as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes that we came with. And if we don't like the characteristics of our life, then we realize, oh my God, these are characteristics are out of my control because the genes are doing this. What does that lead us to? Just, I mean, consciously, what does it represent? It says, you are a victim a victim of your heredity. If there's cancer or Alzheimer's or diabetes running in your family, there's the popular conception that, oh, if I have those genes running in my family, then I will be a victim of those genes. And so I am powerless. The genes run over me. I don't control the genes. Well, teaching this to medical students, and of course, the public has been imbued with this philosophy since they were in grade school where the idea of genes even came into the story. We have a whole population believing they're victims, meaning that they're powerless, that their heredity, their genes, their DNA are controlling them, and they cannot control the DNA, which means once you own that powerlessness and you perceive yourself as a victim, what you seek is a rescuer. Who in the world can help me because I am the victim? And then all of a sudden, voila, steps in the pharmaceutical industry and says, here I am. I will help you with anything. I have all these drugs that are going to control those genes. And the problem about that is being the victim means you give up control of your life. You give it up and then you buy the advice of some people who presumably are the ones who will control your life with their practice, their drugs, etc. This whole idea is completely false. Mm -hmm. We now know the new science and the new science, which I was pioneering in back in actually in 1967, my research revealed the nature of the new science. And it, it took almost 30 years before that new science became actually a real field of science called epigenetics. I say, okay, wait, epigenetics sounds like genetics. I go, yeah, it sounds like genetics, but it's a revolution. And here's where the difference is. Conventional understanding, 
recognizes something we call genetic control. Literally, that just means control by genes. Yes, my life is under genetic control. <laughs> my life is controlled by genes. That's what most people are, are walking around with today, that knowledge. But this is now false. Now, we now recognize that genes are not self-actualizing, not able to control their own activity, their expression, behavior. There's a new science for this. It's called epigenetics. Well, it sounds like genetics. I said, what's the difference? And here's the profound difference. Greg, this is it. Epi means above. So if I say genetic control, that means control by genes. But if I say epigenetic control, it's a revolution. And the reason is epigenetic control literally means control above the genes. I go, there's a control above the genes? What control is that? The mind. The mind is the controlling factor that regulates and controls the activity of our genes. And the reason why this becomes totally important is it now understood is that it's the environment and our perception of the environment that activate and control genes. Relevance is profound, and that is this. If it's the environment and our perception of the environment that controls our genes and recognize that, well, we have the power to change the environment. We have the power to change our perception of the environment. And all of a sudden it says, well, if we're the ones that have that power over our genes, and sure, we're, we're not victims. We are masters. We have the ability to control our genes based on the action of the mind. Hmm. Why would that be? And the answer is simply this. Nature can predict what's going to happen in the world, in the environment, before a person is even born, even when they're just a primitive sperm and egg, before they even come together. How can nature prepare a biological organism to live in a world that that world isn't understood or won't be understood until it happens, meaning it unfolds? I can't tell you if a sperm and egg are coming together today, realize that they were created in their parents. The eggs, for sure, were created in the mother at the time of her birth. And she's not going to be able to use those eggs until after she reaches sexual maturity, which means anywhere from 14, 15, 18 years of age or something like that. Why is it relevant? Well, how can nature prepare the genetics of an organism to live in an environment 18 or so years before that environment shows up. And the point is, well, nature can't do that. There's no idea what's going to happen. Nature is able to adjust the genetic activity of the child as it's developing because it's at that time of development that this fetus is going to get ready to come into the world. And the point is, well, what's the world like <laughs> at the time of this, this birth? And the answer is, you can't predict. So nature has created epigenetics, a mechanism that says environmental conditions at the time are the factors that control our genetics. As the environment changes, we change our genetic activity to adapt to an environment. So basically it says our belief that we've been programmed with, that our genes are forecasting our physical behavior and emotional future, is sort of like pre-programmed. That belief is false because the program is adjustable day by day. And in fact, in a recent study on meditation, they looked at genes controlling some inflammatory aspects of the immune system before the people meditated. And then 
looked at the same gene activity after eight hours of meditation and found that the gene functions completely changed. What was the point? Uh, the belief that your genes are concrete and that's the way the world is, is, is false. Genes change within hours of changing the environment or our response to the environment. So simple conclusion, Greg, after all of that, <laughs> all those words is our perception of being victims and powerless is completely a misinterpretation. We can change our genetic activity at any time in our lives. And in fact, it turns out that 90% or more of disease on this planet has no historical genetic background in a patient, meaning the diseases arose as a result of the lifestyle and perceptions of that person. They started with a completely healthy set of genes. In fact, the data now shows that only less than 1%, this, this is number, less than 1% of disease is actually connected to genetics. If genes are responsible for such a small percent, then where does disease come from? That 90 plus percent of disease is the way we interact with the world, our perceptions, our environment. And the significance is if those are the factors that control our genes and we have the ability to control the environment and our perceptions, then in fact, we are the powerful forces in controlling it. And the recognition is it's based on how we respond to the world. And that's where you started with how we respond to the world controls our biology. Mm -hmm. Man, that is a great summary. And I do love the empowering <laughs> nature of this perspective. And in terms of diseases and viruses, I mean, a lot of people, I think, consider them to be like independent organisms that can get into our system and wreak havoc. But how should we think about things like diseases and viruses? Are they just not a threat to us if we have a strong enough mind? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to say how powerful is this mind? Because here I'm trying to tell you that we have perceived ourselves as vulnerable victims, open to disease and, you know, problems like from bacteria, viruses, parasites. And we perceive ourselves as these weak entities when, in fact, that is the farthest thing from the truth. We are so powerful that we don't even know how powerful we are. We are so far wrong. I'll just give you a couple examples. People walk across hot coals. And there are two groups of people that try to interpret that. Some groups of people say, oh, well, the coals aren't really that hot. And people walk across and they don't get burned. I go, well, that's not really true. And one of those recent big, you know, guru type walk across the hot coal meetings where uh, hundreds of people were walking across the hot coals, it turned out a large number, 20 or more of the people got severe burns mm -hmm. and the other people didn't get burned. So wait a minute. Yes, it's hot enough to burn you. Then the question is, there are few people that got burned, but the large majority didn't get burned. I say, what's the difference? It was the perceptions and beliefs of the person walking across the coals. In other words, if your mind is completely in alignment with that walking across the coals is not a harmful thing, you can walk across the coals and not get burned. But if you will start walking across the coals and just for a moment, actually say, oh, can I do this? <laughs> you know, just have a moment of thought. Is this possible? That moment of thought leads to the actual person getting burned. They let go of their belief system and then question whether they're safe or not. The moment they let go of the belief is the moment they get burned. You know, people are familiar with all that. That's really minor stuff compared to this. 
There are people in the South, in the U.S., that work themselves up into uh, religious ecstasy. They start speaking tongues and doing kinds of things which they call testifying. I go, what, what is testifying? Well, it's the way they want to show that God protects them. Their belief in God is so strong that they will do something no ordinary intelligent person would ever attempt to do. Like what? Well, for example, I said snake handlers. These people who believe that God will protect them and have that belief so strong are the ones that can pick up a handful of rattlesnakes and poisonous vipers and and play with them. And when they get bitten, rarely is there any consequence. A little sidebar, about two or three months ago, one of those snake handlers actually died from playing with those snakes. But most of them have no effect. And you go, well, okay, uh, I don't understand that. And I say, well, it's like walking across the hot coals is that if you believe and truly believe that these poisonous snakes are not harmful, then getting bitten by them doesn't seem to have effect. And you go, oh, okay, that's pushing it a little bit. And I go, no, I'm going to push it full. And here it is. <laughs> Greg, some of these people testify that God protects them by drinking strychnine poison in toxic doses. And guess what? In this state of religious ecstasy and in this state of absolute belief in God protecting them, they can drink this poison and not have any harmful effects. You know, and I go, wait a minute, you can drink poison and not have an effect? As long as your belief is unshakable as these people's beliefs are, They actually are drinking the poison, and there's no effect on their body. Here are a bunch of people in this world that are so concerned about eating a Twinkie because there's sugar in it. Mm -hmm. And these guys are showing, my God, you could eat, you know, strychnine poison. But the belief, the belief is the critical part. And this is where we have to move into for the simple reason. We have, as a civilization, been programmed with a belief, since beliefs control our lives, with a belief that we are vulnerable and frail. And I go, well, if that's what your belief is, then by definition, that's what you will manifest. And all of a sudden, we start to see is, yeah, but this belief now turns out to be scientifically flawed, that we are extremely powerful people, but we have to recognize it's the power of the mind. And I think this is where the problem comes from, because you talk about people who who talk about positive thinking. And then there's like a million people out there going, oh, that positive thinking story, that's a bunch of crap, man. I I have great positive thoughts about being a happy, healthy, successful person. And in spite of all these wonderful thoughts, I am not. (laughs) And I go, uh, and they're the ones, yeah, that positive thinking stuff, that's a more BS, you know, more belief system. And I go, that is belief system. And here's the point. When we talk about positive thinking, we're talking about the role of the mind. Yeah, the mind. And that's where the problems come from, Greg. Because when we say the mind, it almost sounds like, oh, there is a singular thing called the mind. That's the problem. What we have been calling the mind is actually two interdependent minds that work together Right. One of these minds is called the conscious mind. The other is called the subconscious mind. What's really critical and people don't understand is these minds are not just separately named, but they actually learn in different ways. The conscious mind and subconscious mind have different ways of learning. And more importantly, not only do they learn in different ways, but they have different behaviors. 
And so you could say the mind is apples and oranges. Yeah, there are apples which function one way and oranges that function the other way. And if you don't know how they interact, then there's a mystery about the mind. The mystery that most people poo-poo the idea of, of positive thinking saying, yeah, I got all these positive thoughts and I'm sick as a dog. What's going on? Here's the issue. The two minds, and if I separate these, Greg, this will help us. And then once I define this, then the conversation will be a lot easier because then we'll be on the same page. And here's what the conversation is. There are two minds. The original mind in the evolution is the subconscious mind. And by definition, subconscious means below consciousness. This is the mind that controls behavior without any thought involved. In other words, our blood pressure is regulated, our body temperature is regulated, our physiology is regulated. There's no mind thought to say, oh, hey, listen, I've got to breathe again. I forgot to breathe. Now, oh, I'll breathe again. And oh, hey, heart, you should do some beating. No, look, all those things are controlled automatically by the subconscious. Yeah, the subconscious mind is a powerful thing. Well, our subconscious mind is unconsciously controlling our biological activity. Our subconscious mind also controls much of the behavior that we learn between the last trimester of pregnancy and the first seven years. I'll give you a simple example. During that time period, you learned how to walk, you know, in the first months of your life. Why is it relevant? I say, I don't care how old you are right now, but guess what? If you stand up and say, I'm going to go to the other room. You start walking, it doesn't require your conscious mind to say, okay, now left foot and now the right foot, move the next foot. Walking is an automatic unconscious behavior. It's controlled by the subconscious. So the subconscious is pretty cool. Things that we learn how to do, we don't have to learn them again every day. You, you learned how to walk before you were you know, around one or two. Once you learn how to walk, the subconscious mind stores a program of walking. Same thing applies with driving. You, before you had a, a driver's license, you, you had to learn how to drive. It was a practice period, just like practicing and walking. What results from the practice? A behavior, a habit, driving the car. And I go, why is it relevant? I say, because look, you can get in the car if you've driven for a while, put the key in the ignition and not even think about any of the details of that driving. Consider going back to the first day you sat behind the driver's seat and realize how overwhelming it was to, to keep your attention on what's going on in the rearview mirrors, the side mirrors, what's going on on the dashboard, what's going on in the street in front of you, what engine noises or what the car is doing. You're keeping so much attention as being paid to every detail of driving. But once you've learned how to drive, once you practice driving, once it becomes a habit, you don't need to pay attention to details. You get in the car today, you put the key in the ignition, and you're thinking about, yeah, when I get to the drugstore, I'm going to get this and this and this. And you're thinking about all this as the car is driving down the street. If your conscious mind, which is the one that's thinking, is not paying attention to the driving, then who the heck is driving the car? And the answer is the subconscious. Once it learns a behavior, it is a program. You don't have to relearn it. You just have to push the uh, start button and the program will play. So here's the point. Subconscious has programs. The programs are primarily downloaded during the first seven years of life. How do you download the programs of life? In the first seven years, our brain is predominantly in a lower vibration called theta. That's an EEG, electroencephalograph uh, uh, vibration characteristic of kids between zero and seven years of age. That's the predominant brain activity. Okay, theta. And I say, what about theta? Well, it's imagination and character. That's why a kid 
riding a broom and sees it as a horse is actually experiencing a horse, even though they're on a broom. And the mother might say, give me the broom back. And the child is like looking like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a horse. And that is imagination mixing with the real world. But here's the most important part. Theta is also hypnosis. I go, yeah, what do you mean? The child's brain for the first seven years is predominantly in hypnosis. Why? Because I just want you to stop for a second and think of how many things must a child learn to become a functional member of a family and a community? How many rules and regulations and behaviors that are fundamental to becoming a functional member must a child learn? Thousands and thousands. I mean, just to give a simple example, how a father talks to his own kid is not the same way a father talks to somebody else's kid, which is not the way the father talks to the mother, which is not the way the father talks to some other adult, which is not the way the father talks to the policeman. All of a sudden you realize, oh my God, Every one of these interactions requires a different behavior. Mm -hmm. And if I say, how many behaviors must you learn then to become that functional member of this community and society? Thousands and thousands of rules. And I go, oh, so let's give a kid, you know, here's your two-year-old. Here's a book of rules, child. Study these <laughs> rules so you can become a member of the community and the family. The answer is, no, you don't have to do that. And the reason is because theta is hypnosis, a child, which includes all of us, there's nobody here that didn't go through this phase. A child is in hypnosis during those seven years, and the child observes the parents primarily, the siblings, and the community to see how they behave. What the child observes, the, the subconscious mind is like a video recorder. It records all these behaviors. Mm -hmm. So it learns how the parents respond to all the details in their life and all that and is downloaded into the subconscious as, as copies of their behavior. Then fundamentally, the behaviors in your subconscious are not of your origin. The behaviors programmed your subconscious are copied from other people. Then it says when the subconscious is running some of these programs, the behavior that is expressed is not any behavior that you personally may want to have or use for your own particular life. The behaviors you're expressing are just playback of recorded programs from other people. When you're operating from the subconscious, the behaviors you primarily express are downloaded behaviors. And, and I go, why is it relevant? Because I say, well, what's the difference between this subconscious mind, which is now we can refer to it as the habit mind, I learned how to do something. I learned how to walk. I learned how to talk. I learned how to drive a car. Once these programs are in, they're habits. And if I need to walk or drive the car, I don't have to relearn. I just push the play button. I play the habit and my behavior will be what I learned. Function of the subconscious mind, part one, is that it records habits and behaviors and they operate below consciousness. So yeah, I can drive the car without thinking about the details of driving the car once I learn the habit. So subconscious mind's habit. And what's the difference between the conscious mind, which kicks into gear about age seven? The conscious mind's not a habit mind. The conscious mind is a creative mind. The conscious mind in its creativity uh, has your basic, your wishes and your desires. So I say, hey, Greg, hey, man, tell me, tell me what you want from your life. 
that question right away invokes the nature of creativity because what you're going to do is go into your mind and say, I want this and that and that. And then I go, that's creative. That's a, a wish and desire mind. That's where our wishes and desires come from. What do you want from your life? I want to be healthy. I want to have a great romance. I want to have a great job. I go, oh, that's a, a wish and a desire. That's a creative thinking. It comes from the conscious mind. So I go, oh, okay. Here's the point. The conscious mind represents you, your spirit, your personal identity, your uniqueness. No two people have the same conscious minds. The subconscious mind is just a record playback device. So two kids getting the exact same lesson will have the exact same behavior. But when it comes to the conscious mind, those are creations. Those are from your thoughts, your wishes and desires of what you want from your life. So I say, oh, well, then the behaviors and wishes and desires in your conscious mind actually express what you intend to have in your life. And I say, well, Greg, what do you want? And then you give me this whole litany. Yeah, I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be wealthy. I go, oh, that's a whole list of wonderful things like that. And I go, so once you're operating from your conscious mind, you should be on the path to getting there. And I go, absolutely. And then here's the monkey wrench. And this is the wake up call. The monkey wrench is when the conscious mind is thinking then it's not paying attention to what's going on in the world around you. So, you know, I ask a simple question to you, Greg. I say, hey, tell me, what are you doing on Sunday at 2 o'clock? Mm -hmm. If you actually are seriously going to answer that, Greg, I say, where's the answer? Right now, where's the answer? Well, the first place is it's not in front of you. It's inside your head. <laughs> you have to think. Thinking, what am I doing on Sunday at 2 o'clock? And I go, wait a minute. If I direct you to answer that question, what are you doing? And it takes thinking, then your conscious mind, by definition, is letting control of the vehicle, letting it go. And the conscious mind goes inwards because thinking is an inside job. <laughs> but if, let's say, I'm walking down the street and all of a sudden I have a thought, and my conscious mind, which was observing the world, the street and everything around me, all of a sudden says, wait, I'm going inside to get a thought going here. For that moment, the conscious mind's not paying attention to what's going on in the world around it. I said, well, if you're walking down the street, does that mean you walk into a tree or you walked off the sidewalk and fell on the street? No. When you were walking down the street and have a thought, you continue walking down the street pretty safely wait a minute, if my conscious mind's not paying attention because it's inside thinking, then who's controlling my walking? The subconscious mind, it knows how to walk. It's 40 million times more powerful a computer than the conscious mind. So in fact, the subconscious mind is observing your whole world and you can still walk down the street even though your conscious mind's not paying attention and walk safely because the subconscious mind is just playing a habit. It knows how to stop at the corner, knows how not to hit the tree. The same thing with driving. A little story just to connect that very quickly. Let's say you and I are in the car having this discussion, Greg, and you're driving the car. Okay, I'll put me driving the car in this case. <laughs> we're driving, I'm having a discussion with you, and guess what? My conscious mind, as we're driving down the street, gets so involved with this discussion, and most people are familiar with this, that's why I wanna bring it up. So you're in this, involved with this discussion, it's really cool, and then all of a sudden, you as the driver, look out the window and realize, you know, for the last few minutes while we've had this great discussion, I haven't paid attention to the road. Apparently, we haven't hit anything. We're still on the road and it's driving pretty good. You know, how did that work? 
because the conscious mind was focused on the conversation, the subconscious mind is the autopilot. That, let's put that word in, autopilot. The subconscious mind can control all of our learned behaviors without conscious involvement. It knows how to walk, how to drive the car, how to talk, how to do your job, anything that you've habituated knows how to do. So here is the most important point. You and I are driving down the street. I'm driving the car. We're having a conversation. I look out the window and it dawns on me. I haven't paid attention to the road for the last few minutes. And all of a sudden you say to me, Bruce, can you tell me what the conversation was we were just having? I go, yeah. And I can repeat to you because my conscious mind remembers we were having this discussion. But then you ask me, Bruce, can you tell me what happened on the road during that five minutes of the conversation? <laughs> no, uh, I don't really remember. <laughs> Because your consciousness was not driving the car. Subconscious was driving the car. Here's the point. You can remember all the things you do with your conscious mind, but when the subconscious is playing, why can't you pay attention or remember what happened? And the answer is simply this. Well, to pay attention, the conscious mind has to be present. <laughs> if the conscious mind's busy, then it has no presence. So when the conscious mind was busy talking with you, the subconscious took over the driving my conscious mind did not have any awareness of what was going on. I couldn't tell you what happened on the road. When we are engaging our conscious mind in focusing like in a conversation or in thought, other behaviors that we're involved with are now automatically carried out by the autopilot subconscious. But when those behaviors are playing, our conscious mind is not observing them. Here's the point. <laughs> Let's get down to it. I'm sorry I'm taking so long in this break, no, but okay. this is a critical part. When the conscious mind is focused on doing something, all other activities are taken over by subconscious, but because the conscious mind's not paying attention, whatever those behaviors are that are coming from the subconscious mind, we do not observe them. Now, here's the monkey wrench. Psychologists reveal that 70% or more of the programs downloaded as habits into our subconscious mind are disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. Hmm. What does that mean? I say, well, if my conscious mind's engaged in something and then I'm subconsciously activating any of these learned programs of habits that I got in the first seven years, I'm not observing those behaviors. And if 70% of them are self-sabotaging or limiting or disempowering, that means the majority of my behavior that I'm not observing is actually screwing up my life because I can't see that they're not supporting me. And in fact, they're undermining me. Mm -hmm. How much of the day, and this is the final part, how much of the day do we spend running our lives with our wishes and desires, the activities of the conscious mind? And the answer is about 5% of the day we are actively controlling our lives with wishes and desires. 95% of the day our conscious mind is engaged. And as a result, 95% of our behavior is controlled by the subconscious. But where did I get those behaviors? I say from other people. <laughs> These behaviors don't necessarily support any of your creative wishes and desires. They're just habits from other people. So 95% of the day I'm playing these other people's behaviors, and since the majority are disempowering, and since I don't see these behaviors unfolding because my conscious mind was busy, that's why the subconscious was playing these programs. So 95% of my life is being controlled by behavior 
that doesn't support me. Mm-hmm. And I don't even see it. So the last story, which I, I hope I can get to the talk with you now. <laughs> the last story I'll just add is this. Most of us are have had a friend at some point in our growing up, our development period. And we were very close to our friend. We knew our friend's behavior very well. We were real close friends. And in this particular case, you happen to know your friend's parent. One day, you see that your close friend has the exact same behavior as their parent. Now, this excites you, so you can't wait to say, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. Back away from Bill. The moment you say that, Bill will go totally ballistic. How can you compare me to my dad? I'm not my dad. And everyone is familiar with this to a certain degree. And I go, most profound, important story at this moment, Greg, and that is this. Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. Bill learned his behaviors by downloading his his father's behavior during his developmental first seven years. Bill plays these behaviors 95% of the day when he is thinking, and therefore these behaviors are subconscious autopilot programs, and he doesn't see it. So everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. Since most of these behaviors are already deemed to be negative and disempowering, that means then 95% of the day, Bill could be sabotaging his entire life with these programmed behaviors, and it's only Bill who doesn't see that he's sabotaging his life. Mm. The result is, at the end of the day, Bill comes home and said, you know, when I got up this morning, my conscious mind had great wishes and desires and wonderful things that I wanted to create in my life. And then I come home in the evening and realize none of those things happened. And I went forward with positive thinking of all these wonderful things. And at the end, nothing happened that was positive. And therefore, and this is the problem, Bill is left with, oh my God, I'm a victim of the universe because I wanted to be successful. But look, I wasn't successful. And it wasn't me because I conscious mind wanted to be successful. And so I'm a victim of forces outside of me. And the truth is, oh my God, no, Bill was not a victim of forces outside of himself. Bill was a victim of the programs that were operating on autopilot subconscious while 95% of the day his conscious mind was busy thinking and not observing the world. And significantly then it says, oh my God, that Bill is not a victim of the universe. Bill is a victim of his own subconscious programming. And then to conclude this, <laughs> Greg, conclude this is we are all Bill, every one of us. Every one of us is having a life that is controlled primarily by programs of behavior that are self-sabotaging mm-hmm. that we consciously are unaware of. And as a result, we are only aware that we didn't succeed. And seeing that, you know, we didn't see our own role in this having a failure, we then blame the failure on the universe and look at ourselves as victims when, in fact, we were actually masters. Every one of us is Bill. Hmm. Every one of us has been programmed. Every one of us has disempowering, self-sabotaging programs. It's a natural state of affairs in the world in which we live. So the wake-up call is, wait a minute, what happens if I don't play those subconscious programs? What happens if I don't default 
to the autopilot and engage those self-sabotaging programs, what would happen? Well, most everybody's experienced that because what we now know is when a person falls deeply in love with someone, there's a period just as they're falling in love where they actually stay in their conscious mind. It's called being mindful. They don't default to subconscious programs for a very simple reason. How does this? If you've been looking for this very special person to come into your life, your whole life, and then they show up, why would you spend your time thinking when they're right in front of your face? The answer is you don't. You stay conscious. Well, then what happens the moment you fall in love? No matter how crappy your life was up until this moment, the next period of your life, as you just fall in love, which I refer to as the honeymoon, is a period of joy and health and happiness and feeling and living heaven on earth until the honeymoon fails later. But what does that mean? I say, when you fall in love, you stop defaulting to the subconscious. You are now operating from strictly conscious mind, wishes and desires, and what do you think you manifested? Heaven on earth. Then well, how come the honeymoon fails? Well, inevitably, uh, no matter how much you're in love, you still have chores, jobs, things you have to do, things that cause you to think. Mm -hmm. And you hadn't been thinking for the first part of your honeymoon. You've been just living who you are, being a wonderful, loving partner and sharing wishes and desires and enjoying life. And all of a sudden, thinking comes back in. And I say, well, what happens when thinking comes back? And I say, oh, my God, you default to the subconscious programming, the behaviors that you got from other people. You haven't even played these negative behaviors in your relationship because in your relationship, you haven't defaulted to the subconscious program during the honeymoon. But as thoughts start to come back in, you start all of a sudden defaulting more and more to the subconscious and more and more behaviors that are negative, disempowering or whatever they are, start manifesting in your relationship. Your partner observes this, sees all these negative programs gets very upset by some of these, <laughs> accuses you of not being yourself because she's never or he's never seen these behaviors and now they just show up. And then you have to realize, but you didn't see the behaviors either. Just like Bill, you didn't see these negative behaviors come back in because they were automatic behavioral programs playing subconsciously below conscious. And therefore, these old behaviors start showing up in the relationship and sabotage the relationship that could even lead to a breaking up. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you stop living from your conscious creative life and return to the negative programming in the subconscious because your mind is all of a sudden returning back to thinking 95% of the day. We lost power. We lost our control. And we end up with not heaven but hell on earth at that moment. Mm. That was a lot of talking. I hope you can get <laughs> something out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's deep stuff. And I definitely like to just stay out of your way and let you get it out there because you got to make the full complete case. But we all know it's really tough to stay in the conscious mind. And if we've been programmed to think that we're weak, feeble victims filled with fear, obviously, we got a lot of subconscious learned programs that are maybe getting in our way and we need more advantageous beliefs or subconscious programs. Is there a way to reprogram ourselves and incorporate this new knowledge into our lives effectively so we can actually, you know, when we do default to that subconscious mind, we have better programs running there? Right. 
So the, that's absolutely the most important part of our conversation, because if we didn't have that ability, Greg, then this would be like the most crap conversation. I'd have to say, hey, yeah, your life sucks. It's always going to suck. <laughs> so therefore, get used to it. <laughs> but no, we can change the programs. And now we have two issues. One, the programs were primarily downloaded from the last trimester of pregnancy through the first seven years. So, you know, ask a very important question. What program did you learn when you were one year old? <laughs> yeah, right away. It's like, uh, I wasn't there. I have no idea what the hell the program was. Most of the programming occurred before you were even consciously aware, even started in utero. Well, how can you identify these programs? And you say, well, okay, we could go to a psychiatrist or psychologist and review our life experiences. You could do that, but generally that's not a, an advantage for a simple reason. As you replay all the miserable experiences that shaped your life, you are reliving them. Every time you relive them, you're reinforcing them. So going back over that history doesn't necessarily help you a lot. Well, Jesus, then how will I know what my programs are? And then here comes the amusing and true part. 95% of your life is coming from the subconscious program. Simple conclusion is your life is a printout of your programs. In this regard, then, I can summarize it very quickly and say this. The things that you like that easily come into your life are there because you already have subconscious programs to encourage those things to be there. But in contrast, and this is one I want people to pay attention to, anything you work hard at, anything you struggle over, anything you put a lot of effort into you know, making something happen, you're putting a lot of work in creating something, a simple question. Why are you working so hard to get to this end? And the answer then is inevitably simple. It's whatever that thing is you are seeking, your subconscious doesn't have a program to accommodate it. And therefore, your conscious mind is trying to put in a lot of effort to override a negative subconscious program. And that's why we're working so hard. But then the reality is, why isn't it very successful? And the answer is, because your conscious program is only working 5% of the day, and your subconscious is working 95% of the day. So therefore, while you may apply a little positive thinking, yeah, I'm going to be better at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become healthy. That's a very nice positive thought. And I say, how much of the day are, are you expressing that? About 5%. Then what about the other 95%? Unfortunately, that's the automatic program playing. So the relevance is positive thinking gets a bad you know, character to it because people say, yeah, I'm thinking positive, but using that conscious mind in that way is not more than 5% of your day. Right. So whatever effort you're using positive consciousness, 5%, it's being conflicted with adverse programs 95% of the day. That's why it's very difficult to manifest those positive thoughts. In fact, the only time it's easy to manifest those positive thoughts, as I mentioned, is when you fall in love, because at that point, the positive thoughts are not working just 5% of the day. They're working, according to science, up to 90% of the day. Your cognitive behavior is now controlled by your conscious wishes and desires as compared to just 5%. And when you're putting that much positive thinking into your day, that's why your life can go from hell on earth after you meet this love of your life. And 24 hours later, all of a sudden it's heaven on earth. Yeah, that's because you stop playing the negative programs. Okay, so positive thinking is 
potential is expressed, in fact, when you fall in love, but on a regular day-to-day basis has very little to do with your life because of its limited 5% expression. So I say, okay, look, I realize I have problems with X. I'm trying to find a relationship and my whole life I'm not getting a relationship. I'm working really hard. I'm sweating over it. I'm putting a lot of effort into it. Most likely, your belief programs that were downloaded in your subconscious mind do not support that. And your efforts are expressing that. Well, the first thing is now we've identified where my beliefs might be having a problem. (laughs) I can't get healthy. So what are we going to do about it? I said, well, you want to rewrite the subconscious because we know the subconscious is not supporting it. So I want to put in a belief that does support health and happiness of my biology. How do you do that? I said, well, you got to have to teach the subconscious. That's where the problems come from. Because the two minds don't learn in the same way. Simple. The conscious mind, by definition, is creative. That's the one that offers wishes and desires. Because it's creative. The conscious mind can learn in so many different ways. Listening to this podcast, watching a lecture, you know, seeing a video, reading a self-help book, even just going, aha, I have a new idea. The conscious mind can put new visions into itself. Okay. That's because it's creative. It can easily manifest these new visions. Yeah. But you see, the subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. The subconscious mind in the first seven years of your life learns because it's functioning at an EEG, electroencephalograph state of theta, which is hypnosis. So it didn't have to do anything but just observe and the mind being a video recorder just downloads behavior directly in a state of hypnosis. By age seven, that process switches because consciousness, uh, higher vibration than theta, consciousness starts off as alpha and then even becomes a higher vibration beta. Consciousness, when it's engaged at this point, then has the opportunity to create new programs in the subconscious by manifesting habits. Mm. In other words, the first seven years of your life, subconscious just learned by observing. But at age seven, new subconscious programs can be put in, but they are put in through practice of habituation. Okay, you want to learn how to drive the car. You didn't learn how to drive just because you sat behind a seat and put the key in the ignition. You had to practice. You wanted to learn the alphabet. How did you learn the alphabet? You started with A, B, C, and you kept trying to extend it until you could get to Z without stopping. And I say, once you were able to get from A to Z, you learned it. You never had to learn it again. It's in your mind right now. The same as walking. Once you learned how to walk, you don't have to think about it again. You created a habit. So, If you want to change your subconscious mind, there are two fundamental ways. Hypnosis, which is the way the subconscious mind learned in the first seven years, and then habituation, which is the way the subconscious mind learns after age seven. You can put new programs into it, but it has to be through a practice of repetition. So if I want to change my life, I can't just have a conscious thought and go, yeah, this is what I like. No, that conscious mind can create that thought because it's creative. But the subconscious mind can't translate that. So the conscious mind's wishes and desires don't just become subconscious programs. You actually have to affect a recording process. You can use self-hypnosis. The reason why you can use that is every night as you go to bed, and just as your conscious mind is letting go of the day where your conscious mind is just drifting off into sleep, the alpha activity of consciousness that vibration reduces to then theta 
just as you're falling asleep, the conscious mind disconnects, but the subconscious mind is in theta. That's the state of programming. So if you put a pair of headphones on as you're going to bed and play a program on a CD called subliminal programming, where you can, as your consciousness disengages, your subconscious is in record mode, then with earphones on, hearing a program of the things that you want to make behaviors for yourself, these are playing as your conscious mind just slips off into sleep. Your subconscious is still present hearing these programs. And by repeating these programs at night, the subconscious will download a new behavior. So basically, that's self-hypnosis. You're, you're putting earphones on and hearing a program when your mind is in a record state of theta. Another way of changing a program is habituation. Meaning, engage in the practice that you want, even if it doesn't seem right. <laughs> in other words, let's say you want to be happy, and your world is not making you happy. Well, you have to habituate happiness. In other words, every day, I am happy. I say to myself, every day, I'm practicing the belief. I am happy. I am happy. I'm repeating it every day. And at some point, the subconscious begins to learn Oh, you want to be happy. And it will automatically, after repetition and repetition, engage in the activity of being happy. There's a, a saying that covers this. It's called fake it till you make it. Right. Meaning if you practice being happy every day and it becomes a habit, there's a point after you repeat it so frequently that the subconscious mind will seek happiness because that's the habit. And all of a sudden, you don't have to consciously become in doing this. You will automatically start to become happy every day by what? Habituating a new belief. So there are two ways to train the subconscious that are natural. One is called, as I said, self-hypnosis by using the theta period to put programs in. And the second way is creating new habits by engaging in repetition of a behavior that you would like to experience. And the more you repeat that behavior, whether it's true or not, the subconscious mind will acquire that behavior and then unconsciously from that point on, follow through and engage that behavior. So I can rewrite those programs that way. And then, of course, there's something that's real exciting because necessity is the mother of invention. And we're reaching a critical time on this planet where human civilization has to fundamentally change its behavior because humans are provoking a mass extinction. <laughs> Biology has recognized that human behavior is undermining the environment so much that we're threatening our own survival as well as this thousands and thousands of other organisms which are dying because of our destruction of the environment. So basically, there is now a developed new way to rapidly change beliefs, and they're called energy psychology modalities. Hmm. Just to give people an insight about these modalities, they engage something called super learning. An example of super learning, maybe you've seen a person in a bookstore open a book and move their finger down the page, just rapidly stroke their finger down each page. During that process, which may take one to two seconds to move your finger down a page, the subconscious mind can read all the words on that page. That's super learning. So a person can, with super learning abilities can stand in the bookstore and as fast as they can turn the pages, read a book, you know, without putting it down within minutes, <laughs> read an entire book. What if you could redirect that super learning to create programs? And the answer is you can. And these are called energy psychology modalities. There are a whole variety of different ones, but basically they all essentially engage a super learning uh, potential, which allows you to download new behaviors into the subconscious mind within minutes. 
And this is so necessary because we are on a time thing here. We have to really change who we are and how we behave on this planet to survive and to move into thrival instead of just fighting for survival means we have to regain our power, reprogram the negative beliefs that have disempowered us, and in place, put in the creative wishes and desires, the ones that actually led to what we call the honeymoon effect. Well, what would happen if I reprogrammed my subconscious, got rid of the negative behaviors, which were conflicting with my life, and replaced them with those positive behaviors? Well, that honeymoon, which for most people is a very short period of living that juicy heaven-on-earth experience, doesn't have to be short-lived. That you can have a honeymoon experience your entire life, every day, wake up with the joy and, and, and happiness and love that you experience, that your first experience in falling in love could be there every day of your life for as long as you live. Imagine that. A life that is totally a honeymoon, waking up and living in pleasure and joy and, and having the, the wonderful experiences of a creator on planet Earth. Well. It's all a matter of being able to put into the subconscious mind, which is operating 95% of the day, those programs that support you in contrast to the ones that we were downloaded with, and the majority of those were disempowering and self-sabotaging. Hmm. When we would replace them, then that means the concept of an eternal honeymoon would be a character of your life. And that is a great destination. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I love these ideas. But let me ask you this, because I've heard you say that medicine is one of the leading causes of deaths, which I get when I've heard that before. You know, most pharmaceutical chemicals are very harsh and overprescribed, et cetera, et cetera. But if belief is what dictates our health and most people are programmed to trust big pharma, how can it be killing us if our mindset is that it'd be making us better? You know what I mean? Well, that's a. That's a great question, Greg. But then I have to say, which mindset has that belief in it, the conscious mind or the subconscious mind? I'm not sure. Ah. I guess I would say the subconscious. No, the conscious mind is the one with your wishes. That's what you want. The mindset is, I don't want this mindset. I want this mindset. I say, great. That mindset, by definition, is conscious mind. Your conscious mind has those very positive wishes. But until you rewrite the subconscious mind, your life that you're experiencing is still coming from the subconscious program. So... Yeah, your conscious mind has the great vision, but until you rewrite the limitations of the subconscious program, you are a victim of that subconscious program. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I have positive thinking. I don't need to take the drugs, and I don't need to do all that. And I go, yeah, well, that's fine. That positive thinking is in your conscious mind. But if you have a program, 95% of the life being played from a program of, no, you're a victim of bacteria and parasites and viruses and you're weak and you're, you know, vulnerable. If that's the program in the subconscious mind, unfortunately, that is the character of your life, no matter how much the conscious mind says, no, I am a powerful individual and I can control my life. I go, yep, 5% of the day, you absolutely can do that, hmm. but not 95%. Fair enough. And another thing I'm curious about is there are times where we discover isolated pockets of people and tribes that haven't really been influenced by Western thought. When we do find these people, are there any cases where their lives or their bodies are radically different because they've been kept away from this pre-programming? Oh, absolutely. Because 
when they start to look at, you know, these isolated communities that have been really not integrated into the rest of the world scene, and they start to look at, oh, look at these people, this group of people in Russia and this community, they don't have heart attacks, they don't have cardiovascular disease, and then everyone thinks, oh, what's in their diet <laughs> is, you know, helping them stay healthy, and it turns out they keep looking for some physical thing as why they're healthy, when the reality was, in that community, in that isolated world, they're not beset upon by the negative subconscious programs and the beliefs of a conventional world that is disempowering. They live in their own world. Those are the ones that could, without thinking about it, walk across a fire every day, or those are the ones that can, you know, drink strychnine mm -hmm. and not have a problem. But once you become incorporated into the major worldview, that major worldview is the disempowering view, the one that says, indeed, we are not as powerful as we think we are. And that really programs us and keeps us in that victim mentality. And so when you do find these isolated communities that have very neat characteristics of not having cardiovascular disease or being able to live for over 100 years without any health problems, and we say, well, how did they do that? And unfortunately, because we're so locked into the mechanical understanding of biology, they must be doing something physically that is different, eating differently or something. And it turns out, no, it's consciousness and behavior. You know, in China, residents of China have different kinds of cancers than residents of, let's say, North America, because the cancers are more or less connected to their culture. Guess what? When these Chinese people move to the U.S., they get the U.S. type of cancer. <laughs> well, what's different? It's the environment that they're in that is shaping the cancer, you see. So basically, it says uh, as you move from environment A to environment B, then you become affected by the characteristics of those in, in environment B, mm. which is different than the source where you came from, environment A. And we keep looking again, as I say, toward mechanical differences and have really not focus on the character of it's our consciousness differences that are, are controlling our health and the characters of our lives. Hmm. Great points. You know, I know we're almost out of time, but I just got a couple more quick ones for you. I like to ask sometimes weird questions that I just haven't heard in a person's previous interviews because sometimes they can seem like you're getting the same information multiple times. So let me ask you this. I talk to a lot of occultists and magic practitioners on this show from time to time. And when you really get down to what they're saying, it's pretty much the same thing. Strengthen your consciousness and you can find that reality is a lot more flexible than you thought, that we are co-creators of life rather than passive observers. And that stuff gets kind of weird. But I'm just curious, have you ever synthesized your findings with some of these longstanding occult or magical worldviews that seem kind of synergistic? Well, it, yeah, it's basically how much can you believe in your own beliefs? <laughs> and the issue is how much have you been programmed to not believe things? And so when you look at a culture where a belief about something everyone agrees with, I, I use a video in my lectures showing a man in Java who is an acupuncturist but has programmed his consciousness and his ability to summon up his chi, his energy in his body. And when he summons up that energy and he's been focusing it for 18 years of meditation, he can actually use that chi from his hands and create a fire. <laughs> he can hold his hands over, like he shows in a video, a newspaper, and by focusing that chi, use that energy to create a fire. 
it's interesting because I show this video in the United States and half the audience looks at it and like, holy geez, look at that. And the other half of the audience go, oh, there's a trick. You know, he, he had a cigarette in the paper and then the paper caught fire and that's how it happened because their belief system is very difficult to take that in as, as real. Mm -hmm. What was interesting is I used that video in a lecture in Singapore. And when I played it, everybody in the audience looked at it and said, like, so <laughs> in their world, that's just part of their culture and their understanding. There's no question about it. People, that's their belief system. So when it manifests that way, it's not out of strangeness. It's just like, oh, that's just, yeah, of course that's the way it is. But if you show that same video to an audience in the Western world, not familiar with any of this, their belief system is so counter that that can happen that immediately they say, well, there's some fake thing here going on. No, <laughs> the difference is whether the community believes in it or the community doesn't believe in it. And that's really the, the separation is if we have a community that believes in our disempowerment, then we are by definition disempowered mm -hmm. as compared to other cultures that do not entertain those belief systems. That makes sense. It's all about belief. But what about things we don't expect? Like what if a person walks into a crowded mall and releases some sort of virus? The people walking around might not notice or perceive what's happening. They definitely don't have a belief that it's going to happen, but they aren't immune to it, are they? Well, they can be immune to it depending on what they are. Are they feeling susceptible? Is there an opening in their armor, a chink in their armor that said, oh, now that that virus is here, it got through that hole and now I'm sick. Because it wasn't looking for the virus, I just automatically wasn't secure in my own skin, so to speak, hmm. to ward off the virus. Now think about it, physicians walk through all these wards with sick people every day, hmm. all kinds of sick people. They don't get sick. Why not? Because they're genetically different? No, their mindset is, I'm the doctor, I can't afford to get sick, I'm the doctor. <laughs> and as a result... They walk through all of this stuff. It's the same as the person testifying by drinking strychnine. I am protected by God, and therefore, I don't care about the strychnine because it's not going to bother me. It's not going to bother them. So the issue is those people in the community that get sick are already receptive to being sick. They're already recognizing, geez, I have no control over this health issue, and, and therefore, it's out of control. And the fact is simply that, no, that's their belief system. So what percent of the population perceives their victims? I say the vast majority. <laughs> and as a result, they are the ones that are susceptible to these issues. True. Fair enough. So I'm also just curious. We, we largely talked about this on the micro scale, individual minds and the health of their bodies. But to get into the material of your Spontaneous Evolution book a bit, this stuff does also work on a macro scale, right? Oh, absolutely. In other words, look, if I want to have peace and I go outside and stand in the street and say, look, positive thinking, my great wish is peace on this planet. And I go, geez, well, I just spent the whole morning having wonderful thoughts of peace and here we are in the middle of a war. Yeah. And the reason is this. Each one of us is like a tuning fork with our thoughts being broadcast from our mind. So our, like our vibration of our mind is going out in the field. In fact, you can read your thoughts not just by putting wires on your head and reading the conduction of brain electrical activity through the skin into the EEG wires. There's a new process called magnetoencephalograph where the probe that reads your brain doesn't even touch your head. It's outside. Why is it relevant? Because magnetoencephalograph is reading 
your thoughts, but your thoughts are obviously being broadcast to the environment because the probe is not touching you. Why is it relevant? If one person has a vibrational thought of peace and a thousand people around that individual have a vibration of war, that peace vibration is flooded with all this war vibration. I have no power. Mm. But if you get enough people to have the same belief, you get enough people to stand in the street and say, we want peace, then peace will be manifest. So all of a sudden, it's like we have individual control to some degree over what happens in our immediate life. But collectively, all of us together can have control that will express what will happen to the entire collective group. So each of us is a vibrational input. And if you get a large number of vibrations, the amplitude of those vibrations are then indeed powerful enough to change the world. And that's why coming together in community is a necessary step in our evolution, because as a community, collectively, we have the power to change the world in which we live. As separate entities, that power is diluted down so much that we have no influence over the world in which we live. And so the evolution we're facing now is we must come together and collectively assert the heaven on earth experience that we all desire, because that's the only way it will manifest. Mm. Well said again. And I know you got to get going. And you've been talking about these things for a long time. Just to bring us up to speed, what's happening in the medical and scientific communities right now? I'm hearing the term epigenetics more and more. Are there mainstream studies or experiments that are coming to these conclusions? Or are these ideas becoming more acceptable? What has you excited when you're looking at the fields as a whole right now? Oh, uh, by 1990, the ideas that I saw in 1970 1990, they started to become fundamental basic tenets of science, that today epigenetics is not just a, you know, like an obscure term at all. Epigenetics is finally coming into the forefront to be recognized as the primary mechanism that controls our biology, our behavior, and our life. And as a result, as we collectively get more and more individuals in the field of epigenetics, remember, it's the collective input that empowers our world, as more and more people take the power back and stop being victims and start recognizing their creators, the epigenetic story will expand and bring more and more people together to the realization that collectively we can create heaven on earth if that's what we want, or in the current situation, let go of the control and, and watch this thing fall apart. So epigenetics is not a side branch of science. It's becoming the main frontier of the new science of personal empowerment. And this is required for us to proceed and evolve into a world that is based on our thriving as compared to the world that we see right now that is falling apart because of our negative, potentially destructive beliefs that we're engaged with. Mm. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Bruce, it is mind-blowing stuff for sure. I have so much respect for your work and accomplishments. I'm no scientist, but I really want this stuff to be true because it does put us back in the driver's seat rather than being victims of circumstance. And you make a great case for it. And as we wrap this up, if people need to steep in more Dr. Lipton before they fully absorb it, where can people go to follow up on your work? The simplest destination is brucelipton.com. And on that website, there's so many resources, so many articles, so many interviews and videos to describe all of this. So it's a, a wonderful source to get this new information on self-empowerment. 
and understand how we can take back control of our lives and create that heaven on earth as not just a, a, a little side activity of our life, but actually the main thrust of our life is that we are creators and we can create a lot better than the creation we are now experiencing. Very cool. Well, thanks again, good sir. Take care out there. I appreciate this opportunity to speak with you, Greg, and I also want to thank your audience because all those people out there are the future of our world, and hopefully we instilled a little uh, self-empowerment for them to take back their power over their own lives because as they do that individually, collectively, we will all experience heaven on earth as our destination. Amen. I think we did that. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Greg, and audience for being there. You got it. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. All right, people, there we have it. Dr. Bruce Lipton. I know it's only an hour, which is a disappointment to plus people, but that's all the time I could get, and I figured I'd rather just do an extra show this month than not do it at all, so we will have five and a half episodes in May. I almost made this just a plus episode to try to entice some new signups, but maybe you're going to sign up just because I get some respect points for not doing that. <laughs> but it was back when I had Bill Bankston on that people said, oh, you gotta check out Bruce Lipton's lectures and books, and sure enough, he's right there in a similar wheelhouse with this power of consciousness, self-healing, mind over matter, magic kind of stuff. I'm sure people will have their differences of opinion on which flavor they like more, but they are guests in the same category, and I think we've had several guests of our own that at least mention Dr. Lipton in passing, so it is great to get the man himself. One hour really just doesn't feel like enough, though. I had quite a few questions that I left on the cutting room floor, and I tried to even whittle it down more on the fly when I realized how few I would be asking, but I hope you enjoyed it. It really is always about the guests, so you don't really need me to talk all that much. And not to go on a THC Plus pitch tangent, but doing a one-hour show, since I haven't in so long, did remind me just how much better the full two hours of a typical episode are and it's weird that the ratio of free listeners to plus members is like hundreds to one. That's really shocking when I think about it, because only a fraction of people really hear the full show. And if you like this show, you know it's only $5 a month to get it all. Sorry it's not free, but I tried everything else I could first, and it is what it is. TheHiresideChatsPlus.com Either way, there are a great couple shows coming up, and you'll get a lot more out of them if you do have that second hour. To be honest, I have like four recorded right now. Two, I really think, are standouts. Two are pretty amazing to me. And two are maybe closer to average. But even an average show is really good, in my opinion, because I think we run a pretty tight quality ship around here. But anyway, as for Bruce, I didn't want to take up the already limited time with questions that are basically things that only apply to me. But if I had more time, I would have brought myself up because I'm sort of curious how Bruce would talk about my own life experience because I got meningitis when I was three, and as a result, I have been deaf in my right ear ever since. Side note, in Vaxxed, they do mention that there was a vaccine that caused meningitis in some kids in Canada in the 80s, and I'm curious if maybe it was related, although no one's ever told me that it was. But anyway... The point is that I don't think I expected to get something like that when I was so young. I probably didn't even think such a thing was possible. So I'm curious how it happened if my perceptions would be playing such a huge role 
And secondly, would the assumption be that I could restore stereo hearing with enough conscious attention and reprogramming if I believed that I could? Is there any example of a person actually doing that? I don't know. Some of this self-healing stuff is a little fuzzy to me when it gets down to these sorts of things. No doubt that Bruce is a smart guy, accomplished guy. He gives great lectures. I do like listening to him, and he makes a good case for his position. But this is a realm where I still really haven't solidified exactly what I think of it. But that's why I guess we have to listen to more people. So I hope you liked it. I know I am behind schedule this month, but I should have two more full shows coming at you by Friday. So I am working double time this week, and I'll see you again then. I've done what I can. Your move masters of belief manipulation, fear and weakness peddlers, and mental paradigm puppet masters, your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight, put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answers to questions never asked. So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance.